Chapter 13 of The Last Egyptian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jesse Percival. The Last Egyptian by L. Frank Baum. Chapter 13 The Talisman of Atkara. Kara found he had only time to dress for a dinner with Mrs. Effringham. Aneth was to be there also, and he must not neglect the intrigue he was conducting to obtain an ascendancy over the girl. That was the reason, he told himself, why he was so anxious to attend. His plans were progressing well at this time. The only adverse element was the obvious infatuation of Gerald Winston for Miss Consnor. But the Egyptian had carefully gauged the depths of the young girl's character. She was interested in antiquities and therefore encouraged Winston, who was a noted scholar. But there was no danger in that. Kara knew more of Egyptology than all the scholars in Cairo, and had often seen Aneth's face brighten when he told her some strange and interesting bit of unwritten history. To be sure, Winston was her own countryman, and had an advantage in that. Yet Mrs. Everingham had once said in his hearing that a handsome foreigner was always fascinating to an Englishwoman, and he had remembered the careless remark and pondered its truth until he had come to believe it. He had a better argument than any of these in reserve, however. If the Englishman really succeeded in winning Aneth's love in the end, then Kara knew how to compel the girl to obedience. As he left his room, he found the dragoman leaning against a pillar of the courtyard. "'Is Nephthys here?' he inquired. "'I suppose so,' answered the dragoman, yawning sleepily. She was due to arrive this afternoon, wasn't she? Kara looked at him with sudden suspicion. Have you seen her? he demanded. Am I the keeper of your harem? retorted Tadris indignantly. Old Tilga has been hidden in the women's quarters for hours. Probably she is attending to your nephthys. He eyed his master disdainfully, and Kara walked on and entered the carriage. He had barely time to join the company at dinner, and nephthys could wait. Winston was not present this evening, and the prince found Aneth unusually gracious. She chatted so pleasantly, her manner was so friendly, and her clear eyes so sweet and intelligent, that Kara gave way to the moment's enchantment and forgot all else in the delight of her society. Nor did he recover readily from the spell. After returning home, he paced the floor for an hour, recalling the English girl's fair face and every change of its expression. Then he gave a guilty start as a recollection of Hatatcha swept over him, impressing upon his memory his fearful oath. Kara's nature, despite his cold exterior, was fervid in the extreme. He had sworn to hate this girl, yet tonight he loved her passionately. But Hatatcha's training had not entirely failed. He calmed himself and examined his danger critically, as an outsider might have done. To yield to his love for Aneth, would mean enslavement by the enemy, a condition from which his judgment instinctively revolted. To steal his heart against her charms would be difficult, but its necessity was obvious. He determined to pursue his plot with relentless hatred, and to raise between the girl and himself as many bars as possible. He scorned his own weakness, and since he knew that it existed, he resolved to conquer it. Once Hatatcha had said to him, you are cold, selfish, and cruel, and I have made you so. True, these qualities had been carefully instilled into his nature. 
He was proud that he possessed them, for he had a mission to fulfill, and if he desired any peace in his future life, that mission must be fully accomplished. In the morning he went to see Nephthys, and his face brightened as he realized how remarkably beautiful she was. The Orientals generally admire only the form of a woman being indifferent to the face, but Kara was modern enough to appreciate beauty of feature while holding to an extent the eastern prejudice that a fat and soft form is the chief attraction of the female sex. So he found Nephthys admirable in every way, and if her indifference and perfect subjection to his will in any way annoyed him, he was at this time unaware of the fact. He wished this girl to replace Aneth Consinor in his affection and esteem, and would forgive much in Nephthys if she could manage to bring about this excellent result. After this, he devoted much of his attention to the Nile girl, striving in his association with her to exclude all outside interests. He purchased for her marvelous costumes and hired two Arab maidens to attend her and keep her royally attired. Kara's most splendid diamonds and rubies were set by Andalaft in many coronets, brooches, and bracelets to deck her person, and many of the wonderful pearls he had brought from the secret tomb were carefully sized and strung to form a necklace for the Egyptian girl's portly neck. Nephthys was pleased with these possessions. They drew her from the dull lassitude in which she had existed, and aroused in her breast a womanly exultation that even her mother could never have imagined her able to develop. It may be the girl began to think and dream, yet, if so, there was little outward indication to the fact. To comprehend any woman's capabilities is difficult. To comprehend those of Nephthys seemed impossible. She was luxury-loving by nature, as are all Orientals, and accepted the comforts of her surroundings without questioning why they were bestowed upon her. Whatever sensibilities she possessed had long lain dormant. They might be awakening now. Her delight in adornment seemed the first step in that direction. Kara purposely remained away from the club for several evenings, following that in which he had won Consinor's ten thousand pounds. Perhaps he wished his enemy to become uneasy and fret at the delay in wiping out the debt, and if so, it would have gratified him to know the feverish anxiety with which the Viscount haunted the club, and watched every new arrival in hope that Kara would appear. At last the Egyptian judged that he had waited long enough, and prepared to still further enmesh his victim. In his room that evening, he took from a secret drawer of his cabinet a small roll of papyrus, on which were closely written hieroglyphics. To refresh his memory, he read the scroll carefully, although it was not the first time he had studied it since it had fallen at his feet when the bust of Isis was overturned at the tomb of Atkara. Freely translated, the writing was as follows. Being finally prepared to join Anubis in the netherworld, I, Atkara, son of the sun and high priest of Amun, have caused to be added to the decoration of my sarcophagus the precious stone of fortune given to me by the king of Kesh in return for having preserved him and his people from the wrath of Ramesses. It is my belief that this wondrous stone will guard my tomb when my spirit has departed and by its powers preserve my body and my treasure from being despoiled until that time when I shall return to Kempt to live again. Let no descendant of my house remove it from its place, for the stone of fortune is mine, and I bequeath it not to any of those who may come after me. In time of need my children may take of the treasure what they require, but to disturb my stone of fortune will be to draw upon the offender the bitterest curse of my spirit. It may be known to all from its changing color, 
being never the same for long, and the color of it is not bright, as is the ruby or the carnelian or amethyst, but ever gloomy and mysterious, that none may mistake its location. I have embedded it in a triple band of gold, and it is placed at the head of my sarcophagus. There it shall remain. Since it came into my possession, I have ever worn it in my bosom, and by its magic I have been able to control Ramesses the son of Seti, to rule his kingdom as if it were my own, to confound all my enemies and accusers, and to amass such riches as no man of Kempt has ever before possessed. Also has it brought to me health and many years in which to accomplish the purpose of my present existence. For this reason do I refuse to part with it in the ages during which I await the new life. Whatever else may happen to my tomb, I implore those who live in the days to come to leave to me this one treasure. It was signed by Atkara and sealed with his seal, being doubtless the work of his own hand. Kara re-rolled the papyrus and put it away, pausing to glance with a smile at the strange ring he wore upon his hand. My great ancestor was selfish, he murmured, and wished to prevent any of his descendants from becoming as famous as he himself was. Nevertheless, had I read the script before I removed the stone from the sarcophagus, I would have respected Atkara's wish. But I did not know what treasure I had gained until afterward, when it was too late to restore the stone without another visit to the tomb. A curse is a dreadful thing, especially from one's ancestor. And it is even to avoid Hatach's curse that I am now fulfilling her vengeance. But Atkara may rest content. I have merely borrowed his talisman, and it shall be returned to him when I have obtained full satisfaction from my grandmother's enemies. Meantime, the stone will protect me from evil fortune and when it is restored, the curse will be averted. Something in this expression struck him as incongruous. He thought deeply for a moment, a frown gathering upon his brow. Then he said, I must not deceive myself with sophistries. What if the curse is already working, and because of it the English girl has turned my strength to weakness? But that cannot be. Whenever I have worn this ring, I have mastered all difficulties and triumphed as I desired and I will triumph in my undertaking tonight. In spite of the reproach I can already see in Aneth's eyes, I am still the controller of my own destiny, as well as the destinies of others. For if the talisman did so much for Atkara as he claims, it will surely prove stronger than any curse. With a laugh, he shook off the uncanny feeling that had for the moment oppressed him, and went to the club. End of chapter 13